Daniel 9, let's hear the word of God. And if you have your song sheets, it's printed in there for you as well. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from Your precepts and Your judgments. Neither have we heeded Your servants, the prophets, who spoke in Your name to our kings and our princes to our fathers and all the people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us is shame of face as it is this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O Lord, to us belongs shame of face, to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. And therefore the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. And he has confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what has been done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us. Yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which He does, though we have not obeyed His voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought Your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made made Yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all Your righteousness, I pray, Let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. Because of our sins and for the iniquity of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. 
Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now while I was speaking, praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the Most Holy. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wings of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Well, as I said, the book of Daniel, as we've been studying it under that heading of what it is to live for Christ in an ungodly world, Uh, We have considered uh, these chapters that have shown us uh, the judgment of God that has come upon Israel, God's own people, and how Daniel uh, experienced experienced himself, though he was a beloved and righteous man. He was caught up in those judgments of God and experienced that which was against Israel for her years of sin, for her years of transgression and wickedness, all of that decline that you read of in in first and second kings, first and second chronicles. The history of Israel is not one of constant, continual, uh, un, unrelenting, uh, if you will, righteous service of God. It, it is more the opposite. It shows continually 
the failings of, of Israel, and, and if we can put it in this realm, the failings of the church in their own way of being faithful to the Lord. It is a struggle of the faith. And Nebuchadnezzar's armies, they came in and they destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. And all of that happened between 589 and 586 B.C. So almost 600 years prior to the coming of Christ. These things all happened. And, and Israel was in, in that light destroyed. It was made desolate. Daniel and with his friends and many others were carried off into Babylon. And while there... You, you think of Psalm 137. We haven't sung it yet. We're going to sing it. But it's one of those hard psalms to sing. And it speaks about a people in captivity wondering, how can we sing? How does it go? How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Jerusalem's been destroyed. Uh, we are under the oppression and we are under the captivity. We are enslaved to a nation who has scorned God and who has carried us away captive, who has plundered and who mocks us in our religion, who believes their gods have triumphed over our God. And, and how do we sing the songs in the foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. If I do not remember you, let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not exalt Jerusalem above my chief joy. You know, that's the, the hardship that, that Daniel himself had to learn. He had to learn to sing the songs of Zion in a strange land. He had to learn to exercise a godliness without the security of Jerusalem and the temple and the ministry of the prophets. How much better do we have it in our day? <laughs> Even though we are uh, the, the church of Christ in an ungodly nation, and I want to stress that again. Don't ever think that Canada is a Christian nation. Christ has not come in these latter days to establish Christian nations on the earth. He has come to establish the kingdom of heaven on the earth. He has come to build His church up in every nation so that the kingdom of God may be seen and known in every nation. That's what He's come to do. And how much more glorious is our situation though we are believers and though we are the church of Christ in an ungodly land, we are not without the Word of God. We are not without the temple. Christ is our temple. And the perfections of His sacrifice and the glory of His work having been accomplished. He's in heaven every day interceding for us. How much better is our state than Daniel's? Do we get that? And yet, the struggle is the same, isn't it? <laughs> the church flounders. And I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to put down the church or, or decrease its importance in our thought. What I'm stating is the reality. We're always fighting against decline, aren't we? 
And, and, and that is the testimony of the church for the last 2,000 years. That doesn't mean we leave the church. But it's, a, it's an understanding. It's a battle. As we heard this morning, we're battling. Every generation of the church is battling. And the greatest struggle we have is not so much with the world around us. It's the struggle to be faithful to our God. And Daniel, Daniel has taught us how to exercise godliness in a strange land. And now we're coming at that point uh, in, in Daniel's life, and it's late in his life. Babylon is gone. The Mede-Persian Empire, that silver kingdom of that, of that dream of Nebuchadnezzar, that second beast, that ram that we've read in chapter 8, it is now come. It's now fast becoming the world empire. The Mede-Persian Empire reigned from about 550 B.C. to 330 B.C. About 200 plus years it reigned as the world empire. And Daniel is writing here uh, as being under King Darius the first. Uh, sorry, under King Darius, who is the father of Darius the Great, the king through whom which this this empire would reach its pinnacle greatness from about 520 to about 486. That's the time frame of what's happening. And this King Darius that Daniel speaks of is the predecessor to that Darius the Great. So we're, we're looking here at a time of about 530 BC, in and around there. About maybe about 10 years uh, left of what we call the 70 years of Israel's desolation. We're in and around that time frame. And, and one of the things that Daniel has constantly shown us about the God who is our God, we're constantly being brought to God in this book. And we're shown a God who never slumbers nor sleeps. We have been constantly shown a God who is sovereignly, and, and I dare to say this, vigorously, not just sovereignly reigning, but he's vigorously engaged in all the affairs of all the kingdoms of men. Let us never think that God is not involved in such kingdoms of our day like China and, and Russia and some of those nations in Africa and those Muslim nations. Let us never think that God has just, has just forsaken His work and His determination to subdue those kingdoms under the feet of Christ. Daniel shows us God is engaged in the pagan, godless nations of this world. And that's an encouragement to us. Daniel has been showing us, presenting the truth, that God is ever working out His purposes to establish the glory of His Son as King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and I use that phrase and that title because you don't see it so much in the English language. But this title of King Darius is exactly that title. King of Kings. Have you, you recall reading back in Daniel 6 how everyone addressed Darius? They said, O King, live forever. 
because he had assumed the title as the great king of kings. Well, whenever man assumes such titles, who are they standing in opposition to? (laughs) The Lord our God. And God is not blind to that. And I say this so that we take courage in our day. Our God is sovereignly and vigorously engaged in the affairs of the nations of this world. And Daniel presents us with that truth so that we may learn to sing the Lord's songs in a strange land so that we may learn to experience the blessings of joy and peace that come with trusting the Lord. These are difficult times for Daniel. Daniel knows that the time of restoring Jerusalem has come. You see that in verse 2. He has been reading the prophet Jeremiah and the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. They are nearing. He knew Israel's captivity wasn't really going to end in an earthly sense. We have seen from from chapter 7, chapter 8, we have seen from the vision of Nebuchadnezzar that greater desolations, greater sacrilege and blasphemy, they were going to come against the Lord and they were going to come from the empire that would take over the Mede-Persian kingdom, the Greek empire, that bronze kingdom of that statue, the, the third beast, the goat that we read of in, in chapter 8. And, and then after that, a more fierce and vicious empire would come, the Roman Empire. Daniel knew that Israel was never going to be released from her captivity. (laughs) That that the people of God were going to be remaining in this world, though they are not of this world, under the tyranny of evil men. And yet he hoped in the Lord. He he praised this prayer of, of hope in the Lord. And it's almost as if he's setting before God, remember what you promised to do. Come and do it, even though we don't deserve it. (laughs) That's the summation of this prayer. But he knew, he did know, that the end of the desolations of Israel and Jerusalem were coming. I think there is some carryover of this to our own present condition. We know that, that, that life in this world for the church is always going to be one of struggling against the evils of our time. What did Paul say in Ephesians 5? He, he said, how are, we, how are we as God's people purposed to conduct ourselves when we understand that we are living in times of evil? We are to be redeeming the time because what? The days or this era is evil. And was Daniel just simply looking at his own his own generation when he says that? No. He was bringing the testimony of the church in every generation until the Lord comes. That we are ever living in days and times of evil. And where does it end? 
It ends with the Lord's return. (laughs) It ends with the hope that the desolations that we are undergoing in this time and in these latter days is going to come to an end because the Lord is returning. And, And He is coming to build and establish the fullness of God's kingdom on the earth. And we have that hope before us. That, that is why we can labor in hope. That's why we can walk in a time of evil with a, a joy and a peace guarding our hearts against the evil of our day. But in light of that, I think Peter, the Apostle Peter, asks the appropriate question. And you can find that in Second Peter 3, uh, verse 11. And following, he says, Therefore, since we know these things are coming, what manner of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness as you are looking for and hastening the day of Christ? Now, I want to stop there and ask you this question. How do you hasten the day of Christ? How do you, as you look forward to His return and know that that date has been sealed up in the wisdom and counsel of God is not made known to us, but we know it is coming. We are living in the the sense that it is ever impending. And it's not that our days are as evil as they can be. Or perhaps as evil as they're going to be. We live in that knowledge. How do we look for and hasten that day? Well, in two ways. One, by a holy conduct of godliness. Isn't that what Daniel shows us? Haven't we learned that from Daniel? Hasn't he set before us as as one, even though he's confessing his sins and the sins of his people in here, we have seen Daniel is is the pinnacle example of godliness. The other way is through prayer. Therefore, beloved, therefore looking forward to these things, be Let me start that again. This is from 2 Peter 3. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Christ in peace without spot and blameless. And consider the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. I think a life of holy conduct, godliness, is one of the ways that we hasten the day of our Lord. The other way, the other means, is by prayer. We are praying. You think of it in light of the Lord's Prayer. What is that petition we are ever to be making? Thy kingdom come, O Lord. Bring forth your kingdom, O God. Let your righteous kingdom come and and bring an end to the unrighteousness of this world. And we can pray that because the promise of God has been made. 
And it has been sealed by the resurrection and ascension of Christ. What do we confess about the Lord Jesus Christ? We confess that He was incarnate. We confess that He suffered and died under Pontius Pilate, was was crucified, dead, and buried. We confess that He rose again and ascended into heaven. And we confess what? That He is coming again. We are praying for that. The promise has been made. And I set you said that before you because what is Daniel doing as he looks forward to that day when the Messiah will come back and restore Jerusalem? When the 70 years of the desolation of Jerusalem have come to an end, Jeremiah prophesied about that in, in Jeremiah 25. Daniel's reading this and he's Hastening that day, he's saying, Lord, you promised. (laughs) Do it, please. Do it, please. He knows. He knows God's promise. He knows the sovereignty of God in, in declaring and making these promises and in coming and fulfilling these promises. But do you notice here that, that that understanding, that grasp of that doctrine truth, the sovereignty of God, it hasn't removed him from his responsibility. It has spurred him on in his responsibility. It has engaged him. It has compelled him to be holy and godly and to be a man of prayer. And aren't those the two things that define Daniel in his book? Do they define us? You know, one of the most... I've said this often and, and I keep encouraging you congregation and it's not that I'm trying to guilt you into it, but you know, one of the most significant things the church can do beyond the worship of God that we experience on this, the Lord's Day. One of the most significant things the church can do, and it's shown in the New Testament time and time and time again, is to come together to pray. To pray. I think that's one of the most significant things we need to be doing together. Because We believe in the sovereignty of God. And because we know the promises of God. And God wants us to pray in that way. This, though it is Daniel's personal prayer, you see that in verse 4. He says, I prayed to the Lord my God. This is very much a corporate prayer. It has become part of the very Word of God so that all of God's people can read this. And when you read this, this prayer, Daniel isn't speaking personally. He's praying corporately. To us is the shame of face. As it is written in the law of God, all this disaster has come upon us. We have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquity. It's a corporate prayer. It's a corporate confession. And that's the thing about understanding and embracing the sovereignty of God. Is that we are praying and one of the great things that this confession, the, uh, 
this confession prayer, this prayer of repentance that Daniel uh, is is making, is is that he's making it because he wants Christ to come and restore Jerusalem. Do we not want that for the church today? And in seeking Christ to come and restore Jerusalem, Daniel prays. And he prays because he knew God had spoken. He knew what God had said. You know, the basis for all prayer is seeking what the Lord has promised to do. That's why we pray. Such prayer is not about how much trust we can muster up in ourselves or about how capable we feel we are to pray with other people or how capable we feel to ask of God. Daniel, he, he lays before God the sins of Israel and he just says, you know what God, we are a desperately wicked people and we don't deserve anything. But, but you promised... <laughs> Isn't that an amazing thing to consider in this prayer? And you see, that's what prayer does. It it, it looks to what God has spoken. Prayer is faith searching the Scriptures to see what God has promised and then it asks, it seeks, it knocks, and it does so because they knows this is God's will. Let the will of God be done. And the trust that is exercised in prayers like Daniel's, the trust that's exercised is in what God has said He will do. The prayer we of, of faith that we are exercising is knowing God cannot lie. <laughs> We're not holding Him accountable. We're believing He is a God of truth and righteousness. Daniel had read Jeremiah. Jeremiah 25, verse 12. It will come to pass when 70 years are complete that I will punish the king of Babylon for their iniquities and I will make it a perpetual desolation. Here's the difference. God perpetually, that is, He destroyed Babylon so that it should never rise again, but not so with Jerusalem. Isn't that encouraging? That as bad as things get within the church, God will never forsake His bride. That's that's the point. And thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed, Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return. What a promise. Daniel believed God. He believed the sovereignty of God. You see in verse 3, he set his face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer. He believed the sovereignty of God and it spurred him on to pray. And why is that? Because he knew that in his sovereignty that God's Word is a covenant Word. Look at verse 3. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. 
Now let me ask you this. Is God's love, when you read verse 4, is God's covenant mercy and love dependent on our love for Him? And if you're sitting there saying, well, that's what it seems to be saying with those words. I, I want to say this. I'm not saying that we are, we are to be slack in our love for God. I'm not saying that any measure of our disobedience is favorable in any way before God. It isn't. But is Daniel saying that? That God's covenant mercy, His covenant love toward us is dependent on our love and obedience? No, because what does he say in the next verse? We've sinned. We've failed. We've fallen short. We are desperately wicked. We rebelled. We didn't do what we were supposed to do in our covenant relationship. But you, O oh God, are a covenant-keeping God. <laughs> and you wonder, how can God be like that toward a rebellious, disobedient people? How can God maintain His bonded promises to us of mercy and of love. It's because we who are God's children, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have a covenant head whose righteousness and obedience is true and perfect. And it covers us. Praise God. (laughs) That's That's why we can pray. That's why even when sin abounds in our life and we come in that humility of repentance like Daniel is doing here, saying, Oh God, we have been wicked. We have turned away. Oh God, have mercy on us. (laughs) That in covenant love, what does He say to you? I like how, how John says it. Christ will be faithful and just to forgive our sins. Because of the sufficiency of His sacrifice that has been made on our behalf, He is able both to be faithful in that covenant mercy and that covenant love to His people, but also just to be able to say, yes, your sins have been paid for. That He's not Just simply saying, oh, that's okay, I know it was hard for you. But no, he comes and he says, I have paid its penalty. You are released from the bondage of guilt because justice has been served and I will forgive you and cleanse you from unrighteousness. Praise God. My friends, Daniel had an understanding of that covenant mercy of God. And that's why, you know, you know here in these verses, Daniel, some 18 times here, speaks about how Israel has sinned, how Israel has been wicked, how Israel has rebelled against God. And yet he says, God, Lord, verse 7, righteousness belongs to you. To us is shame of face. But then what does he go on to say in verse 9? To the Lord our God also belongs what? Mercy and forgiveness even though we have rebelled against Him. You know, He's saying, God, You were righteous. You were righteous to bring this desolation upon Your people. 
You were right to punish these sins. You were right to bring judgment upon us. You were right in removing Your glory from the church and allowing her to become a byword in people's mouths because You were maintaining Your glory in judgment. But you know, the righteousness of God doesn't stop there. God is also righteous to restore. God is also righteous to the brokenhearted, to to the one who confesses their sins. He is righteous to restore and show mercy and forgiveness and to, to restore them on the earth. What's the great promise He made in 2 Chronicles 7.14? I know many of you know it. If my people who are called by My name, will humble themselves and pray and seek My face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and what? Heal their land. That, my friends, is the covenant faithfulness of God. That is the gospel of righteousness from God. That is God saying, yes, I can be just toward you because my judgment has been poured out on the Lamb of God and I will restore to you who are broken and contrite through my mercy, through my forgiveness, I will build you up and maintain your way on the earth. Isn't that wondrous? And Daniel sought this, knowing they did not deserve it. He pulls no punches as he confesses Israel's blame for the desolation that she experienced. He acknowledges the faithfulness and rebellious nature and the idolatry that that Israel exercised against God. And yet he appeals to God. And he does so in hope. Because he knows this. He knows that this is the glory of God. God's own glory, Daniel sees, is is at the very center of Israel's restoration. Israel's restoration cannot be apart from the glory of God. Daniel saw Israel's greatest need above anything else, was the forgiveness of their sins and the mercy of God to come and, and bring forth a righteousness in their, net, in their midst. But, but you know, you look at verses 17 to 19, you, you can see He knew that blessing was tied to the glory of the name of God. For your name's sake, for your own sake, for the city and the people who are called by your name. Oh God, do this for your glory. Not because we deserve it. You know, that's the amazing thing about Christ restoring His people. Christ restoring His church. Why He does it? It's because His glory is set upon them. You know, we, we deserve to receive judgment. I say it again, Daniel confesses, they have, and you see it in verse 18, they have no righteous deeds by which they can make any appeal to God which might restore Him. But he did know 
that what did belong to God was righteousness, mercy, and forgiveness. And those things that belong to God, God is desiring, delighting to exercise. Israel had to become broken and contrite. Seventy years of captivity did that. (laughs) You know, in our generation, how long has the church been going in her decline? (laughs) We haven't even reached some of these time time periods that we read in the Old Testament. But 70 years to become broken and contrite. 70 years to see the shame of her sins. And yet, it is the grace of the faithfulness of our God that seeks her restoration. My friends, that God is the same God today. He is a God who will be faithful and just to forgive our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore His church. Do you believe this? Christ has promised to bring forth His kingdom, to establish His church on the earth, to build it up in contrition, in brokenness of heart, in humility, in repentance, in seeking of God's mercy. My friends, here we are seeking the glory of God to do the very thing that He wants to do. Will you join the church in praying such a prayer for God's sake, for His glory? Pray that Christ indeed will restore His name in His church. Let us pray.